Oh, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Again, Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And if I don't have an opportunity to do so before Thursday, let me wish you now, of course, a happy Thanksgiving. And trust that it is a blessed time with family and friends. And as Brian prayed earlier, that it would be a Christ-focused, gospel-saturated time. Because truly, for those of us who are the people of God, Christians, we have much to be thankful for. And so I trust it will be a blessed time of celebration this week. Have you found Galatians chapter 4? Follow along as I begin reading in verse 12. Brothers, writes the Apostle Paul, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And so the Apostle Paul, his own words, by his own admission, he is perplexed about the churches of Galatia. Why? Just turn back for a moment to the very first chapter, right back to the beginning, and look at what he pens beginning in the sixth verse. I am astonished and so perplexed in our text back in chapter 4, astonished here in chapter 1, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so again in chapter 1, Paul is astonished. And here in chapter 4, Paul is perplexed. And we have a pretty good idea why. Simply put, uh, these professing Christians, uh, these churches in this geographical region known as Galatia, uh, they are in danger of slipping away from the truth. They are in danger of embracing a false gospel. In the context, uh, it is not difficult to ascertain what the false gospel is. It is simply this. Some are teaching that to be saved. Some are saying, that to really be welcomed and received by God. Some are affirming that to have a right standing in God's sight, uh, you, my friend, must live under the Mosaic Covenant. 
You must go back and you must live under the Old Testament law. Uh, you must be circumcised. You must start to obey all of those dietary laws. Yes, you can eat this. No, you can't eat that. You must start to obey all of those washing laws. Uh, you must start to observe all of those days and feasts and festivals. Uh, you must buy into the whole thing in order to be saved. As Paul's point is simply this, I am astonished. I am perplexed. I am absolutely dumbfounded that you are abandoning so quickly the grace of Christ. The gospel that I have proclaimed to you, that you, my friend, right now, it applies to each and every one of us. If you want to know God, if you want to be welcomed by God with a love beyond explanation or description, if you want to be certain that on that day, yet future, when you stand before God, your judge, he will welcome you. If you want to be absolutely certain, there is only one place you must look, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, God forgives us freely. He welcomes us freely, and he does so not on the basis of our merit. He does it on the basis of the Lord Jesus who suffered there upon Calvary's cross, bearing the penalty that we deserved on account of our sin. And we believe in the Lord Jesus. And believing in the Lord Jesus, God takes the perfect life and obedience that belongs to Christ. He imputes it and reckons it to us, whereby God now declares us just in his sight. And so to be saved, it is what? It is by grace. It is all of grace. It is a gift that God freely gives. How do I receive this gift? I receive it through faith. Faith in what? Me? No. Faith in the Lord Jesus. That the Lord Jesus is pleasing in the sight of God. The Lord Jesus has borne the wrath of God. That God is pleased. He is thrilled with his son, Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. I am one with Jesus Christ. And therefore, God accepts me in his beloved it has nothing to do with the life I've lived or the life I could ever live. It has nothing to do with my works. It has nothing to do with my merit. It has nothing to do with my effort. It has everything to do from beginning to end with Jesus Christ. I'm perplexed, says the Apostle Paul. You know why I'm perplexed about you. It is because you are abandoning the gospel. You are in danger of walking away from the truth as it was proclaimed to you. And so in these verses, Paul expresses his perplexity and very pastoral heart, isn't it? You get the real feel for it as you read these verses. I mean, here's a man, you can almost picture him. He's on his knees, undoubtedly in prayer, as he, as he is worried about these professing Christians and their spiritual condition. And so he writes to them in this particular passage of Scripture, and he begins with a command. There's a command in verse 12. It's actually the first command in the epistle. That's interesting. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Look, I became almost like a Gentile. I realized there was a day when God saved me, and I realized that I was no longer under the law. I realized that I was no longer obligated to obey the law, that I couldn't obey the law, and I was freed. I was released. I was liberated from all those legal requirements, and in particular, all of those laws that were a wall of separation between you as a Gentile and me as a Jew. Now become like me. Don't you understand how I'm living 
Well, look to me, I'm a Jew, but I'm a Christian now. And I've turned my back on that Old Testament covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, and I'm no longer living under that old covenant. I'm now living under the new covenant. So become like me. That's his command. He follows it up with an appeal. In verse 13, he goes back to when he was present with them, when he had first passed through the region and preached the gospel to these people. 13th verse, you know it was because of a bodily ailment. We don't know what it was. Plenty of ink has been spilt trying to ascertain what it was. Read my lips. We don't know, so don't waste your time. We don't know what the problem was. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, I mean, after all, who would have thought that I was a representative of God? Who would have thought that I was a messenger of God? Who would have thought, given the weakness in which I found myself, that state, who would have thought I was speaking on God's behalf? But how did you receive me? You did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God. Oh, more than that. You received me as Christ Jesus. Do you not remember? It wasn't that long ago. We're not talking about 10 years. We're probably nearly talking about months. Maybe a year has passed. And do you not recall uh, what happened? Oh, oh, the weakness, the bodily ailment, the illness, whatever it was, and how I came to you. And out of that weakness, I made known to you the mercy of God as available as found in Christ Jesus. And do you not remember how you received me and embraced me and welcomed me? The appeal is followed with a question, 15th verse. Actually, two questions, but basically he's asking the same thing. What then has become of the blessing you felt? Why the sudden change? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I think it's hyperbole. He's conveying what? Again, how they had received him, how they had welcomed him, and they had done so, so appreciatively. Uh, they had done so, so lovingly to the point where they were prepared to sacrifice all for the sake of Paul because it was Paul who had brought the good news of salvation to them. And look at the question in the 16th verse. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What's happened here? Why the drastic change? One moment, not that long ago, you can't get enough of me. And you can't do enough for me. Oh, you were so blessed. You were so thrilled. The message of reconciliation that I proclaimed in Christ Jesus. But a short time has passed. Now, all of a sudden, simply because I am proclaiming to you the truth, am I now your enemy? Explain this to me. He then gives a comparison, beginning in the 17th verse, a comparison between the false teachers who have infiltrated these churches and himself, a comparison when it comes to the motive behind their ministry. Verse 17, they, who are the they, these false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. Here's why they make much of you. They want to shut you out. They want to put up all these barriers. They want to resurrect the Old Testament law, something that they think is super spiritual. They want to put it up this wall to shut you out, to show you they're better than you, that you may make much of them. Well, they're the godly. They're the super spiritual. 
They're the saved. And so please understand their motivation. It is completely self-serving. Now notice Paul's motivation. Verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm not in this for me, the Apostle Paul is saying, in effect. I'm not in this to see what I can get out of it. Uh, the, the motivation, it's not self-serving nor self-seeking. My motivation is Christ. And my desire is to see Christ formed in you. This comparison followed, bringing the entire section to a conclusion in verse 20 with a wish. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone because he's been a little aggressive. He's expressed a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. I wish I could be present with you now, clear up this mess, set the record straight, see you walking in, 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 by the Spirit in the Lord and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. There's the text. A beautiful window into the heart of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? A beautiful window into a pastoral heart. A glimpse of a man who is concerned, deeply concerned, over the spiritual condition of these professing believers, churches, to whom he is writing. Now, here is the question. I have mulled over the past couple of weeks. If Paul were still alive, if the Apostle Paul were still with us, and he were to write a, an epistle, a letter, to the saints gathered at Glen Rose, Texas, Grace Community Church, and uh, would he? Is there any chance? Is there even the slightest possibility somewhere in that letter we might find that very phrase at the end of verse 20, I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed about you. I'm worried about you. Uh, the title for this sermon, you've got it there in your sermon notes, is taken right from verse 12, Become As I Am. There is actually a subtitle. It wouldn't fit on the page. Here it is. The subtitle. You try to get this down. Ten things. Ten things I hope we have figured out by now. If not, I am certain the Apostle Paul would be perplexed about us. All right? There you go. That is the subtitle. Become As I Am. There's your title. And here is the subtitle and the gist of what we're going to try to accomplish together this morning. Ten things I hope we've figured out by now. If not, I am certain that the Apostle Paul would be quite perplexed about us. Ten things that emerge from our text. Here's number one. And no, I'm not going to belabor these. No, I don't have a great deal to say on these. No, in other words, you can rest easy. This isn't going to take half the day. We're going to move quickly through these 10 points. Number one, freedom. Freedom from legalistic bondage is a daily pursuit. I trust we figured that out by now. Freedom from legalistic bondage is a daily pursuit. Twelfth verse, I entreat you, because I'm at, become as I am. I'm free from legalistic bondage. 
These are professing Christians. This is a church to which he is writing. And it would be naive on our part if we were to think, if we were to assume that as Christians, we are free of, once and for all, this nagging voice in the back of our heads that tells us repeatedly, perhaps daily, that, you know, in the final analysis, when it's all said and done, who gets in and who doesn't is contingent on you. It does rest on something in you. There is something in you that will be the determining factor. We are, face it, my friend, I'm speaking to Christians, even as Christians, unbelievers, certainly so. Even as Christians, we need to embrace this daily. We are legalists by nature. We are legalists by nature. We want, oh, we desperately want to identify something we do as the reason why God loves us, forgives us, and welcomes us. The reason we think this way and the reason it is so difficult to let go of this thinking is because we are riddled with pride. But here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us, the gospel makes it very clear. The good news is bad news before it's good news, and here it is. The gospel proclaims that we are without any merit at all. We are without any merit whatsoever in the sight of God. The gospel proclaims, it tells us, that God loves freely. Loves freely. He forgives freely. He welcomes and receives freely in Christ Jesus. That all who approach him through the one appointed mediator, All who come to him through Jesus Christ, not on the basis of their own merit, but on the basis of Christ's merit, he receives and welcomes freely and openly. The gospel makes everything of God's grace and absolutely nothing of our effort but the voice in the back of your head and the voice in the back of my head. Oh, it is so persistent. It tells us there must be something we can do to make God impressed with us and, I dare say, indebted to us. Now, I pray. I pray we are killing daily that nagging voice in the back of our heads. There's the first thing, the first truth. Freedom from legalistic bondage is a daily pursuit. If you have not yet come to grips with that, let's just put the Apostle Paul over here for a moment. If you, my friend, as a professing Christian, have not yet come to grips with that, I am perplexed about you. I am perplexed about you. Oh, to mortify it daily, that spirit of legalism. Here's the second thing I hope we've figured out by now. God is glorified in our weakness. Amen. I am so thankful for it. He is glorified in our weakness, which means what? He is not glorified, I dare say, never glorified in our strength. He is glorified in our weakness. 13th verse, you know, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, 
you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. God was glorified to such a degree through the life and ministry and preaching of the Apostle Paul because of his weakness. I dare say, it may not be entirely fair of me to say this, there might be a church somewhere, but I'm very doubtful that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he could find a senior pastor position. I'm guessing he probably wouldn't. He was such a weak man, such an unappealing man, such an unattractive man. He had so much going against him. He certainly conveyed nothing that we value, nothing that our society holds dear. We are enamored with beauty. We're enamored with money. We're enamored with success. We're enamored with power. We're enamored with prestige. And here's our confusion and where the waters become so muddy and murky. We think that these things are actually the weapons of our warfare. We think those things are actually the weapons of our warfare. We actually think those are the means by which Christ's kingdom will advance. They are not. God is, and I pray we've learned it by now. I trust we're still learning it at this point. My friend, God is most glorified in you when you are weakest. Antithetical to our complete way of thinking, isn't it? And he is most glorified in me when I am weakest. Therefore, how do you view your illness? How do you view it? How do you, how do you view your inability? Or perhaps we should make it plural, inabilities. How do we view our depression? How do we view any other number of weaknesses that plague us? We view these things as obstacles. If only that were not the case, then I would be useful. And the Spirit of God says to us, No, my friend, oh dear child, do you not get it yet? The opposite is true. It is through these very things that God is most pleased to magnify His glory. Why? Because He will not share His glory with another. He will not share His glory with another. And so He delights to work through the weak. He delights to work through the despised. He delights to work through the marginalized. He He delights to work through all those things that appeal appear contrary to everything we value as a society and as individuals. Oh, I pray we figured it out by now. I pray we have embraced weakness as the chief means by which God delights to demonstrate his power. We figured that one out by now. Here's number three. The third thing I pray we figured out by now. Number three, to receive Christ is to receive his word. To receive Christ is to receive his word. That's what's going on in the 14th verse. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now fill in the blanks. It's not difficult to do. They don't receive him as an angel of the Lord. They don't receive him as the Lord Jesus Christ himself simply because of who he is. They don't receive him because he is an exceptionally in intelligent or cultured individual. They don't receive him in such a, such a loving fashion as Christ Jesus himself. 
uh, because he is particularly gifted or anything like that. Why do they receive him as Christ Jesus himself? What is it they have understood? That he is a representative of Christ Jesus himself. Not merely a stand-in representative of Christ Jesus, but an apostle of Christ, one who has been entrusted with what? The message of Christ. One who has been entrusted with the gospel. One who possesses, unique to that age and era and time period, apostolic authority. One who has come in the name of Christ, proclaiming the word of Christ. Their reception, their welcoming, the manner in which they embrace Paul testifies to what? Their appreciation of the word. Apostolic succession is not among bishops. Apostolic accession, succession resides in the word of God. It is apostolic truth as found in scripture as it is passed on from generation to generation that stands preeminent in the history of the church and in the history of God's people because it is that apostolic succession, the passing on of that faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that deposit that has been entrusted to the church that as it is passed on, Christ himself is exalted because it is Christ's message. These are Christ's words. So I find myself asking a very simple question. Do I listen to the Bible? Do we listen to the Bible as if Christ were physically present with us? Is that how we listen to it? The Bible is as powerful, we read in Isaiah 55, as the rain and snow that come down from heaven. And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Heaven above, earth below. The realm of the infinite and the realm of the finite. Creator and creature. Christ, the head of the church and the body of the church. There is but one bridge between these realms. And it is this book. It is the Bible. It is the word of God, the very voice of God going forth, accomplishing his purposes according to his will. Oh, I pray we listen to the Bible. I trust we've learned it by now. I pray we listen to the Bible as if we heard God speaking from heaven. Here's the fourth thing I hope we've learned by now. Happiness is worth losing your eyes for. Happiness is worth losing your eyes for. Where do I get that? You're making that one up. No, no, 14th verse. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. It's hyperbole, right? A form of hyperbole. What's his point? You would have done anything. You would would have done anything. Not just done anything. You would have sacrificed anything on my account. Not for me as an individual, but because of the message I was proclaiming. 
because of the good news of reconciliation in Christ Jesus that I had brought to you, because of the blessedness, it's the word he uses at the start of the 15th verse there, because of the blessedness, because of the very blessing that was poured out upon you, your acknowledgement, your recognition that at one time you were separated, alienated from God, but now you have been brought near through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it means to have your sins forgiven. You know what it means to have been a former enemy, enemy, but now to be at peace with God. You now know what it means to put your head on your pillow at night and fall asleep and understand that all things are in the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. You now grasp it, you get it, that yes, a day of judgment is coming, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You understand all of this. This is now the most important thing to you. To such a degree, you would gouge out your eyes for it. You'd be willing to give everything for it. Some of us can't get out of bed on a Sunday morning. Some of us can't blow the dust off our Bibles during the week. Some of us can't stay, say no to sin on any regular basis. Some of us can't sacrifice one minute of our time. Some of us aren't willing to give anything, which has to make us wonder what? What, do we really get it? <laughs> do we really get it? Uh, what it means to be reconciled with the Almighty. What it means to be at peace with God who was your sworn enemy. A God, as Jonathan Edwards portrayed it centuries ago, dangled you like a spider with a spider's web over the very pit of hell to have known you were but a heartbeat away from eternal damnation. And this God, by His grace, stepped in and saved you. Oh, I dare say we gouge our eyes out for this, this blessedness, this happiness, to know what it means, as we considered last Sunday, to be known by God, to have God as our Father, and to have Him take us and receive us and welcome us as His children. Oh, the message of reconciliation is the cause of blessedness. I pray. I pray the gospel heightens the intensity of our joy to such a degree that we realize that whoever gets Christ gets everything. So let me just speak to the unbelievers for a moment. There's got to be some here. I know there are. Did you hear what I just said? If you get Christ, you get everything. No, I am not saying all your problems in this life will go away. I am saying the Bible will bring a lot of wisdom to your problems and maybe help resolve some things. It will certainly help you live with them and glorify God in them, not promising you freedom from problems. Nor am I promising you that all your earthly dreams will come true. No, my friend, I am identifying the most basic, fundamental issue you face right now as a human being. It is this, whether you realize it or not, you are at war with Almighty God. Heaven help you. You are at war with Almighty God. And we read in Psalm 2, he sits in the heavens and he laughs in derision. Dust. Who do you think you are? Dust. Oh, but here's the good news. Oh, he is loving and he is welcoming in Christ Jesus. He has made bountiful provision for sinners that if we would just get over ourselves, if we would just get over our pride and our obstinacy, 
And if we would just recognize that we need a Savior and we need him big time, and we would understand that the Savior has a name, Jesus Christ, and that we would look away from ourselves, fix our gaze, our eyes of faith upon Christ. Oh, in Christ Jesus, we would find forgiveness for sin. I don't care how dirty your past is. It doesn't matter the muck and the mire of my past or your past. I don't ma- it doesn't matter what has gone on or what you are presently involved in. Oh, to understand that to believe in Christ, subsequently forsake sin, to understand that God's mercy flows fast and free to the penitent sinner, oh, that is blessedness. And to know, to know with absolute certainty, die this day, you know where you're going. Pass from this scene tomorrow. You know exactly what eternity holds. Oh, to have the certainty and be able to take that verse, Romans 8.1, as your own and to claim it as your own. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that is happiness, that is blessedness, and it is worth losing everything for. Here's the fifth thing I hope we've learned by now. All right? If not, Paul is a little perplexed. Fifth thing. The truth is offensive. I might already have offended you this day for all I know. Because the truth is offensive. Sixteenth verse. Have I then become your enemy by punching you in the nose? That's not what he says. Have I then become an en- your enemy for getting on Facebook and bad-mouthing you? No, that's not what he says. Have I now become your enemy for letting the air out of your tires of your vehicle? No. Have I now become your enemy for what? Simply telling you the truth. Am I now your enemy? How is this possible? I preached the gospel. What a time of blessing it was. You welcomed me, received me, because in effect you were welcoming and receiving the message of the Lord. Now these, these, these infiltrators have come in. They are presenting a dis- completely distorted, twisted thing that they're passing off as the gospel. It's not. And you're traipsing off after them. It's inconceivable. Oh, but now I'm telling you the truth. And is it possible that by simply telling you the truth, by simply upholding God's will before your eyes, that uh, me, says the Apostle Paul, one who at one time you were willing to gouge out your eyes for, I'm now public enemy number one. Well, I pray we've learned this. The truth is offensive. Why? Because self-love makes us conceive the best things about ourselves. Self-love makes us conceive the best things about ourselves. What happens when someone dares draw our attention to the worst things about ourselves in the light of God's Word? We resent it. Whenever God's Word is upheld consistently and faithfully, it will cross our self-love. Crosses mine all the time. I pray we understand by now that our will and God's will are on a daily collision course. I pray we get it by now. Here's number six. People aren't a means to an end. Verse 17. They make much of you, false teachers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Uh, There are few, few subtleties. Listen carefully as we move quickly through this one. There are few subtleties more perilous than an emotional need for people to need us emotionally. I think I need to repeat that one. 
There are few subtleties more perilous than an emotional need for people to need us emotionally. Why? Because when we have an emotional need for people to need us emotionally, we will use them as a means to an end. That is what these false teachers are doing. Have I an emotional need for acceptance, people to accept me? Have I an emotional need for flattery? Have I an emotional need for validation? Have I an emotional need to feel important? If so, what happens? My relationships become contingent on the degree to which people meet my need. What happens if a particular person does not play along, thereby meeting my need? Well, that individual becomes what? A disappointment. Or worse, now the object of my ill will. Oh, do we derive our identity from people or Christ? Do we derive our sense of self-worth from people or Christ? I pray the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love in Christ Jesus frees us from the chains of self-serving relationships. Here's number seven. We are what we are when we're alone. Seventh truth I hope we've grasped. We are what we are when we're alone. 18th verse. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, right? Not only when I am present with you. You made much of me when I was present with you, but now in my absence, my absence from you, I have become your enemy. And so now they are actually revealing a, 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 an alarming measure of immaturity, spiritual immaturity and spiritual instability. Because they were willing to make much of Paul when he was present, but in his absence, they had pretty much forgotten about him. What happens, young people, when your parents aren't around? Who are you? What are you like when your parents aren't around? That's a good question. Parents, you think you just escaped examination? No. What are you like when no one else from the church is around? What are you like? What are we like when our spouse isn't around? Do we, do we make much or little of God's will for us when no one is watching? That's the question. I pray we have learned what it means by now to live quorum deum, which is what? Before the face of God, because he is watching. Here's number eight. Tenderness goes a long way. Tenderness goes a long way. 19th verse, just a phrase right at the beginning. Oh, my little children. My little children. He says something closely related in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. He declares, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Is there a more delicate picture than that? Is there a more beautiful imagery than that? We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Gentleness, tenderness doesn't mean that we refrain from saying hard things. Paul has said, and he is yet to say, some pretty hard things in this epistle. What does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be tender? It means we refrain from being harsh. Are we? Questions I've wrestled with. Am I, are you, are we too easily offended, too easily frustrated, too easily exasperated when pride is our motivating factor, when self-love has a hold on us, 
We can't handle criticism. Can't handle it. We can't handle disagreement. We can't handle offense. Why? Because our self-worth is contingent upon how people treat us. And when our self-worth is always contingent upon how people receive us, perceive us, react to us, we will always react. We will always feel the need to be in the right, always feel the need to be heard, always feel the need to be affirmed. No, tenderness. Oh, my little children. And a tender, gentle spirit, I dare say flowing from humility, poverty of spirit, characteristic of Paul's ministry and his handling of these believers. Tenderness requires it, poverty of spirit. I pray God's boundless mercy in Christ is a reality that keeps us close to tears. Keeps us close to tears. Here's the ninth thing I hope we've figured out by now. Ministry isn't easy. 19th verse, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Anguish of childbirth. Childbirth itself, the birth of the child, there's the child. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? What precedes it? Not so much. Anguish. And so Paul takes this, this very pointed, again, picture, uh, image, the anguish of childbirth, and he is describing his own ministry in this terms. It is like giving birth to a child, the pain and the anguish and the suffering of it all. There is a cost to ministry. hope you've learned that as a Sunday school teacher as an elder, as a care group leader, as someone just discipling someone else, as a parent, I trust we've figured this out by now. There is always a cost to ministry. Always a cost. There is a cost in taking the time to minister. There is a cost when it comes to pouring into someone else's life. There is a cost when it comes to preparing sermons, studies, whatever. There is a cost when people reject you or resent you for your ministry. There is a cost when people are apathetic. There is a cost when people fall away. Ministry means sleepless nights. That's where Paul finds himself, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. What does he say in the 20th verse? I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Oh, the cost of ministry. As he labors on their behalf, prays on their behalf, here's my prayer. I pray we are willing. I pray as a church, Grace Community Church, collectively and individually, we are willing to go through the anguish of childbirth for the sake of others. Others. I pray we've figured that out by now. Here's number 10. Our ultimate aim is to see Christ formed in us. Right there, 20th verse, I just, 19th verse, my little children. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There is the longing of our hearts. There is the longing of our hearts for us as individuals that Christ would be formed in us. There is the longing of our hearts for one another as fellow believers that Christ would be formed, visible, tangibly evident in everyone's life. Uh, conform to his death, that we would realize that as Christians, we, we have died with him upon Calvary's cross. And now that means each and every day we're to be conformed to his death, meaning what? We're to put to death sin and temptation. I hope we understand now what it means to be conformed to his suffering. Uh, he suffered humbly 
willingly and joyfully what it means to be conformed to his life. He lived in absolute submission to his heavenly Father, and so too we are submit to submit every area of our lives to the Word. What it means to be conformed to his character, whereby we put on the mind of Christ. Oh, my prayer. You go back earlier in the chapter. My prayer is that we will act like sons. You look at what Paul writes in the fourth verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are sons of God, saved so that we might look like the son of God. That's our aim, isn't it? I mean, that, that really is what even behind, is behind our mission statement, Grace Community Church, to equip God's people to delight in his glory and declare that glory to the nations. Well, how is that glory made known? How is God most glorified? How is God most glorified in us? When Christ is most formed in us. That as Christ is made evident in us, conformity to his life, conformity to his death, conformity to his will, conformity to his suffering, conformity to his character. That in that, as we reflect the image of Christ, oh, God is most glorified. Did you get all ten of those? Quite the list, wasn't it? Ten things. I hope we've figured out by now. If not, I am quite certain Paul is, if he were alive, would be a little, just a little perplexed about us. It's quite different to what he writes there in the 20th verse, I am perplexed about you. Very different from what John writes in his third epistle, I think it is, verse 4, he declares the following, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I've been here almost nine years now, and I can say with all sincerity before God above that uh, I have no greater joy as I have looked on and as I have observed the obvious work of the Spirit of God in the people of God here and the image of Christ being conformed, formed in them. While at the same time, I can also say before God, at times I have no greater perplexity than the fact that a handful, perhaps only a handful, are in precisely the same condition I found you almost nine years ago or eight years ago, or seven years ago, or six years ago, whenever you started coming. No greater joy, no greater joy than to see God's children walking in the truth. Oh, no greater perplexity than to wonder, do they really get it? Do they really get it? I don't say that to dismay anybody. I say that perhaps to challenge one or two, a necessary challenge to one or two. Is Christ formed in you? and a great encouragement to the children of God here at Grace Community Church for what is so evidently clear for any who, who are concerned to take a look 
that despite our many faults and despite our many shortcomings and despite our multitude of sins, that in the midst of it all, to see the evidence of God's grace at work and men and women, boys and girls, walking in the truth. Oh, what a great joy and what a great cause of celebration. Our Heavenly Father, take your word as it has been proclaimed, put forth, and apply it to each one here this day. We ask you would do so according to your infinite wisdom, in accordance with your matchless power. And we pray it for the glory of your name among us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.